Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 977. We have a guest preacher this week. I'll introduce you to him in a moment. So that means that next week we'll be diving back into our series on the book of James and we'll be in chapter 3 next week, which deals with the whole topic of of taming our tongues, how the gospel applies to our speech. And ahead of uh, that sermon next week, I have a homework assignment for each and every one of you. So please pull out your phone or pull out a pen or a pencil. There's some pencils in your pew rack in front of you and make notes of uh, this homework assignment that I'd like to give you for next time. It's called the tongue assignment. It's not original with me, but it really helps us lay the foundation to reflect upon how the gospel impacts our speech and our language. So a list of five things that I want you to do are really five things that I don't want you to do as homework this week. Okay, you ready? Number one, this week, all week long, don't complain or grumble about anything. Don't complain or grumble about anything. Some of you smile and chuckle thinking this must be a joke, surely. Um, I had one elder tell me, you know I work on the hill. You know, there's a... (laughs) And then he said, hmm, but we're in recess, so maybe. Maybe this is possible. <laughs> Number one, don't complain or grumble about anything. Number two, don't gossip or spread a bad report about anyone. Don't gossip or spread a bad report about anyone. Number three, don't speak a harsh or judgmental word to anyone. Don't speak a harsh or a judgmental word to anyone. Number four, don't make excuses don't defend yourself or don't shift blame at all. Don't make excuses, don't defend yourself, and don't shift blame at all. And number five, don't boast about anything except, of course, the cross of Christ. Don't boast about anything except the cross of Christ. Now, I want you to know that with this homework assignment, you will not be successful. (laughs) And if you are, you cannot boast about it, okay? (laughs) But it will be a, a helpful thing for us to do. As you do it, talk about it with your friends. Talk about it with your spouse. Talk about it with your children. Do it together. And don't just have them do it. Do it with them. And share your successes and share your failures. And be speaking about this over the course of this, this next week as we ready ourselves to dive back into our series in the book of James. Now, though, we turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, reading through the end of verse 19 to a a profoundly significant and and beautiful section of God's perfect word. Let's read this together. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now invite Ligon Duncan to come to our pulpit. Ligon is the 
Chancellor and CEO at RTS. This is a a new appointment within the last year. Before that, he served for almost 18 years as the senior pastor at First Presbyterian, during which time he also uh, taught uh, at RTS at Jackson, one of my professors there. Uh, also managed to find time to be the moderator of our denomination's General Assembly to contribute to some 35 books to co-found uh, Together for the Gospel and generally do more than you ought to be able to do in one lifetime. However... Ligon's true brilliance is revealed by one simple fact. So tell them where you did your doctoral work. The University of Edinburgh. There you go. (laughs) This is great to have a fellow alum preaching in our pulpit this morning. So as he comes, uh, let me pray pray for us. Lord, again, we're, we're grateful for this time of praise and worship to celebrate all that you are and all that you're doing for us. And now, Lord, we ask that you would quieten our hearts before your word that we would submit to its truth and submit to its teaching and understand the grace and love that is for us there. Lord, I ask that you would give Ligon just great freedom, great confidence, clarity of thought and expression to to share the word with us, the people who who need to hear from you. So come and be our teacher through Ligon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, James, so much for opening your pulpit to me. I know what that means to a minister, to give the pulpit to a visiting brother, and I don't take that as a a light responsibility or a light compliment. So thank you so much for the privilege of being with you. There are many people in Jackson that uh, appreciate your pastor. Uh, The Van Pelts this morning asked to be remembered to you. Dr. Miles Van Pelt, a professor of Hebrew and Old Testament. Uh, Miles and Laurie and his family love James well. And uh, let me say, it's always wonderful to be in a congregation uh, who loves their pastor and their pastor loves them. I'm in some congregations where the relations are not that warm from time to time. And it always gives my heart a great joy when I see a happy, healthy congregation. And we hear those reports all the time. If I may say so, we're proud of James and thankful for his ministry. And we're thankful for you. I've already met a number of folks here. There are a lot of contacts between Mississippi and uh, McLean Presbyterian Church, and it's been a joy to see you. And I've even seen a few Furman graduates since I've been here. So it's great to see a few Paladins. My wife is a Furman graduate. She's here today. My son Jennings is here. Let me also say to the congregation that Reformed Theological Seminary deeply appreciates your partnership. Dr. Scott Redd, the president of RTS Washington, is here. Where are you, Scott? You're somewhere way, way in the back. Scott, stand up for a second. Dr. Scott Redd is the president of RTS Washington, and we thank you, James and the elders of McLean, for your partnership with us. We love to serve with you. We have a number of students that are here. You support us in tremendous ways, and we love to work with you for the sake of the gospel. Now let me get your attention back to that scripture passage that James read just a few moments ago. So open your Bibles to Ephesians 4, verses 4, uh, Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19. And I want to show you four things in particular. I, it would take me a sermon series to do justice to this prayer. But this morning, I only have time to show you four things that Paul prays for you in this passage. And, and let me just tell you what they are ahead of time. First, if you would look in verse 16, you will notice that Paul prays for your spirit to be strengthened, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's the first thing that Paul pray, prays for. And you need to ask the question, why does Paul want me to be strengthened? Just keep that question in your mind. Then he goes on to pray, look at verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your heart 
through faith. So he wants you to be strengthened by the spirit so that you are indwelt by Christ. And a question that should pop into your mind is, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. I've trusted in Jesus. I'm united to Christ. Christ already indwells me. Why is Paul praying for me to be indwelt with Christ? I'm already indwelt with Christ. That's a good question, and there is an answer, and so keep that question in your mind. Third, look again at verses 17, 18, and 19, because not once, not twice, but three times, Paul will explain why he wants you to have power, why he wants you to be indwelt with Christ. He says it's so that you will be grounded in Christ's love. Look at verse 17, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. Verse 18, that you would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of what? Of the love of God in Christ. And 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So notice that Paul wants you to know something that you can't know. He wants you to know something that surpasses your capacity of knowing. Now that ought to get to your, your interest too. And then that leads up to the fourth thing that I want to show you in this prayer. Look at verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What in the world does that mean? Now that's Paul's prayer. And I want to look at those four things with you today. What we pray about reveals what we care about the most. What we pray about It it reveals the things that we're concerned about, even worried about. And it reveals what we care about most. You show me a mother. You show me a good Christian mother with an ill child. And I'll show you a mother praying for a child. And what does that tell me? She loves her child. We pray about what we care about. So pay attention to Paul's prayers as a clue to what he cares about most. And in this passage, he reveals to you something that he thinks is tremendously important for Christians to get. There is something that he wants every Ephesian Christian. There is something that he wants every Christian at McLean Presbyterian Church to know. And behind Paul's prayer that we would all know this is God's desire that we would know this because this prayer is not just the prayer of the greatest theologian, evangelist, church planter, and missionary in the history of Christianity. It is the prayer of Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so this is God's will for you to know. This prayer, when Paul tells you what he wants you to know, also tells you what God wants you to know. It's something that you need to know in order to live the Christian life. And so let's work our way through this prayer together because I want you to understand something of the unfolding connection and even argument of this prayer. And the first thing I want you to see is there in verse 16. Paul prays that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So the first thing that Paul prays for, for the Ephesians and for you and me, is that we would be strengthened 
in our inmost being. Now, you ought to immediately ask the question, why do I need to be strengthened? Very often in the New Testament, apostles pray that Christians and churches would be strengthened in order to go through trials or to be faithful and endure in persecution. So it ought to make you just a little bit nervous when you hear Paul praying that you would be strengthened. Uh Uh-oh, what's getting ready to come around the corner? But let me just go ahead and set your hearts at ease. That's actually not why he's praying for you to be strengthened here. He'll do that in other places, but here, this strength is for something else. If you know the story of Samson, in Judges chapter 16, verse 28, Samson's last prayer is a prayer for strengthening. You remember that prayer? Samson has been unfaithful to the Lord. He's been captured by the enemies of God. He is enchained and enslaved in the temple of the false God, of the enemies of God and of his people. And he asks a little servant to put his hands on the pillars of that temple and he prays this prayer. Oh Lord, strengthen me just one more time. Now why did Samson pray for strengthening? In that case, he prayed for strengthening so that he could bring down judgment on the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. Well, that's not why Paul is asking you to be strengthened in this passage. He wants you to be strengthened for another reason. And so you ought to ask the question, what does he want me to be strengthened for? And he's not being sly. He'll tell you what he wants you to be strengthened for. That's the next step in this prayer. Look at the second thing. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, he says, I want you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He wants you to be strengthened with power from the Holy Spirit in your inmost being so that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. Now you need to ask the question. Well, I'm a believer. I've heard James preach the gospel. And when he preached the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, at the right time, Christ died for me, the weak, his enemy, the ungodly. I heard the gospel and I trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he was offered to me. As James brought that word, as my pastors and elders and Sunday school teachers have explained that word to me, I've responded to the gospel, so Jesus indwells me. Yes, you are right. So why is Paul praying that you would be indwelt by Christ? Because union with Christ is a dynamic reality. It is a moment-by-moment growing reality in the Christian life. And Paul is praying that your union with Christ would flourish in you until in your heart, in your inmost being, your desires and affections are changed and set on him. You know, our fundamental problem is we're all idolaters. We think that ultimate satisfaction is found in something other than God. And one of the ways that God changes us over the course of the Christian life is we more and more understand that the only deep and lasting joy is in Jesus as we come to the Father through Jesus the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. That's where real joy and treasure 
and satisfaction is in union and communion with God. But our hearts are filled with all sorts of desires. We're loving things that God does not love. We're hating things that God does love. We're constantly tempted to be warped in our desires in our heart. And Paul wants our hearts to be taken possession of by Jesus Christ. Not just positionally, but really. And so he prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. The the Puritans used to say, this is a prayer for Christ to make his habitation in our heart. Have you ever gone with a friend, they've they've just bought their first home, they've scrimped and saved, they've got enough for the down payment, and they've bought a fixer-upper. And they're so proud of it, and you walk in with them, and it looks horrible. And you want to be excited for your friends, oh, this is great. And you think, they're never going to be able to make this dump look livable. And over time, through sweat equity, they come home from work each day, and they get to work, and they're putting up wallpaper, and they're changing out fixtures. And over a couple of years, that home is transformed until uh, one evening you're invited back to a meal at your friend's home, and you walk in, and the place, it's, it's been totally changed. And not only does it look good, but it actually bears the marks of their own personality and taste. You can, you can see in those, in those window fixtures, it's her. She, that is exactly what she would pick. She's got that house looking like her. Well, Paul is saying, I, I want your hearts to look like a place where Jesus lives so that you love the things that he loves and you hate the things that he hates. And that your desires and affections are set on him and not on the world. Your heart's been shaped by the indwelling of the spirit and by the indwelling of Christ, not the world, the flesh, and the devil. I I want to see a transformation wrought by the indwelling of Christ. And then you still have to say, where's Paul going with this? Why does he want this to happen? Because of the third thing that he prays for. Look again at verses 17 to 19. He wants you to be, verse 17, rooted and grounded in love so that you can comprehend with all the saints. Notice, by the way, that this is not some private mystical experience that only super Christians have. This is something that he wants you individually Christian to experience with every other Christian. He doesn't want some Christians to experience this and not others. He wants all Christians together to have experienced this. Together with all the saints to do what? To comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth. What? Of what? Of the love of God in Christ. And then he concludes, just in case you've missed it, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul wants you to apprehend Christ's love for you in order that you may know a love that surpasses knowing. Now, you know, Paul speaks elsewhere of Christians having a peace that passes understanding. And I often laugh that Presbyterians want to understand the peace that passes understanding. That's just our nature. You know, we want to get out Burkhoff and see where he explains the peace that passes understanding. 
But Paul himself here says he wants you to know a love that passes knowing. And what he means is not that he wants you to open up your textbooks and give a good explanation. This is clearly the language of experience. He wants you to deep down in your bones believe more than the air that you breathe or the pew that you are sitting on that God loves you in Christ. He wants you to have experienced Christ's love for you because that changes everything in the Christian life. It changes the motivation for living the Christian life. It helps you in your assurance, especially in times of trials when circumstances are hard. It gives you energy to serve God with joy. It enables you to love unlovable people and to serve self-centered people because you are awash in the experience of the greatness of God's love for you. The experience of that love changes everything in the Christian life, and it is essential for living the Christian life. But you know what? I have known a lot of wonderful Christians over the years who have struggled to know that love. They have a hard time really believing that Christ loves them this way, that their heavenly Father loves them this way. Thomas Boston, who was one of the greatest of the Scottish theologians, said, if people knew my heart, I wouldn't have four friends left in Scotland. And many, many godly Christians think it's impossible, it's impossible that God would love me because I know what I'm like. I've worked very hard to make sure that you don't know what I'm like, but I know what I'm like down in my heart. It's just not possible that God would love me with an everlasting love, that he would take delight in me. That is a real challenge for many, many godly Christians. And notice the Apostle Paul is praying that every Christian would experience this. I was thinking this morning that over the last 20 years, I've had the privilege of doing several hundred marriages. And as a part of preparing for those marriages, I get to do premarital counseling. And one of the questions that I will often address, uh, especially to the young woman in the couple, is... I'll I'll say, do you mind if I ask a fairly intimate question? Can you really feel his love for you? Does his love get through to you? You really, really believe that he loves you, but that impacts all sorts of things in a relationship. If, If she delights in his love and knows his love, it makes it very easy for her to give herself to him in love. And that makes for all sorts of good things in marriage. And when that's not there, there are challenges. And very often when I ask that question, tears begin to well up in the young woman's eyes. Sometimes for happy reasons, sometimes for very sad reasons. When young women say to me, no, I struggle with that. Very often it's because of their own past family backgrounds. Perhaps there were issues with her parents and especially with her father that make it hard for her to believe that someone really loves every molecule of her. 
Sometimes there have been experiences in life that make it hard for her to receive that kind of love. But when she says, yes, yes, I do know and feel his love for me, I know at least two things. One, she's probably had a daddy who knows how to love a woman. And he has loved her well, and she knows how a man is supposed to treat a woman because her father loved her well. Secondly, I know that probably that means her fiancé is a pretty good man, and he pays attention as to how he can love her well. And he has learned that there are certain things that mean a lot to her, and he tries to serve her in that way, showing her his love. But that experience of his love is very important for her in the marital relationship. Well, my friends, in the Christian life, the experience of God's love for us in Christ, knowing down in our bones that Christ loves us with an everlasting love, is vital for the Christian life. Why? Paul goes on to say in verse 19 that this experience of receiving, of knowing the love of Christ, matures us. It literally matures us. Look at what he says in verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I've been studying that verse for 30 years, and I am absolutely certain that I do not understand all of it. But I'm also pretty certain that it at least means that we are filled up and matured so that we begin to reflect in our character our heavenly Father in whose image we were created. We were all created in the image of God, right? In in Genesis, Adam and Eve are created in the image and likeness of God. And the serpent came to them and said, if you'll just disobey God, you will become like him. And what should they have said? They should have said, no, 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 we already are like him. We already are like God. But when they disobeyed, did they become more like God or less like God? They became less like God. The image of God in them was not enhanced. It was effaced. Now, it wasn't eradicated. They didn't lose the image of God. Even sinners in this world are made in the image of God. That is why we respect every human being on this planet because every human being on this planet is created in the image of God, even enemies who want to kill us. But that image of God was effaced. It was marred. And the Apostle Paul is saying the experience of God's gospel love for us in Christ actually matures us in such a way that we begin to bear God's image in a more tangible way. We begin to manifest it in a more tangible way. Um, Don Carson, in his wonderful book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, which is one of my three favorite books on prayer ever. Now, you would never guess that book is on prayer from the title, one of the worst titles ever, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. I've told Don that, so there's nothing going on here that he doesn't know about. Um, it is a great book on prayer. It's an, all it is is an exposition of Paul's prayers. I encourage you to get it and read it. In his exposition of this passage in that book, he tells the story of his friends at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, Perry and Sandy Downs. Perry and Sandy Downs, after they had reared their own children, became foster parents. And so they would take, you know, day-old, just a few-day-old infants into their homes and keep them and care for them until they were placed into permanent 
loving, adoptive families. It was just a way that they could serve and minister in their community. And uh, so typically the children were very, very young, just a few hours or days old, and they would only stay with the Downs for a few days or a couple of weeks, and then they would be placed into permanent adoptive homes. Well, one day, the phone calls from the Department of Social Services, and they say to the Downs, we've got a little bit of a different case here. We'd like to place two children in your home, and they're not just days old, they're actually 18-month-old twin boys, and we'd like them to stay a little bit longer than just a couple of weeks. Is that okay? And Perry and Sandy talked, and they said, sure. And so the boys were brought to their home and left at their home, and the first night they put them down to sleep, and they went back into the living room, and they heard something strange. Nothing. Okay, you put two twin 18-month-old boys to bed their first night in a strained house, and you don't hear anything, they're up to something, right? (laughs) So they went creeping down the hall, and they looked into the room, and the boys were in their beds with their pillows over over their faces, sobbing uncontrollably. The Downs came to find out the reason was they had been in nine different homes in their first 18 months. In most of those homes, they had been beaten and abused especially when they cried. And they were scared to death. They're 18-month-old boys. They're scared on the first night in a strange home. They didn't want the Downs to hear them crying because they were afraid that they would be beaten again. The social worker, in fact, told the Downs, we're afraid that these boys' affect has been permanently um, affected, that they'll never respond in the normal range of emotion. They're developmentally impaired. They're really serious consequences for the way these boys have been treated. These little boys stayed in the Downs home not for a few months, but for two years before they were placed into a permanent adoptive family. And when the social worker did the post-testing, she said to the Downs, this is amazing. These boys are now responding in the normal range of affect. They, they show the cognitive skills that you would want boys their age to show. Now, what has happened? Well, let me tell you what had happened. In the Downs home, they had experienced love like God intended parents to love their children. And do you know what it had done to those boys? It had healed and matured them. And that is exactly how God's love works on Christians. It heals and matures us so that we can give ourselves away because we have been filled up with the love of God unto fullness and maturity. You see why Paul wants you to know about the love of Christ for you? It changes everything. And it gets to cracks and crevices in your heart where nothing else can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together in your word. We pray that as we come to the table that our Father has spread at the cost of his Son, that we would realize that this table itself is the expression of your extravagant, prodigal love. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.